of intellectual self-discovery. You're listening to another episode of the In the Driveway podcast. Intellectual yet stimulating. All the topics you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. Politics, economics, religion. You know happen under the stars with your bros. So crack open a cold one. Blaze up if you've got one. And join your hosts, Chad and Dustin, in the driveway. What is up, everybody? It is another episode of the In the Driveway podcast. I am Chad, and my co-host Dustin is here with us. What's up, everyone? And today we have a very special guest, Mr. Will Schnack. Is that, did I say that right? You did. Yes, Mr. Will Schnack, good. And uh, we wanted to bring you on today because... You have a lot to say about uh, political philosophy, economic philosophy, even a little uh, theology and, and things along those lines. And those are all topics we're super interested in. So um, and also I consider myself a panarchist. And the reason I found your YouTube channel is because I was looking for other panarchists. And you seem to have a political philosophy that you call geomutualism or geomutualist panarchism, which is fascinating to me. Um, so we've, we've looked over a, a few of your videos and stuff, but we kind of wanted to get you in here just to explain what exactly you're talking about there. Excellent. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, well, so let's just, let's just jump right into it. Uh, so geo mutualist panarchism, what is it? Okay. So geo mutualist panarchism has those three parts. Um, I'd say panarchism is possibly the first part, and that's a philosophy by Paul-Emile de Poy, a Belgian uh, botanist and economist. Yes. And uh, the idea behind panarchy is that uh, people should be able to uh, exercise personal law systems, uh, wherein law is provided uh, in a non- on a non-territorial basis. So you have over- overlapping jurisdictions, uh, different law systems existing in the same territorial space. Um, and then the other parts are Georgism, which is the geo part. And that's a philosophy by an American uh, kind of radical populist by the name of Henry George. And uh, the idea behind Georgism is that the only, uh, the only rightful tax, you could say, is the tax on economic rent of land. Um, so all other taxes besides the tax on economic rent would be abolished. And the tax on economic rent is a lot different than a property tax because it doesn't tax any kind of improvements to the land. So no buildings or gardens or anything like that. And then the the mutualist part, that's a philosophy by a French fellow by the name of Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. And the idea behind mutualism is largely that, at least in the economic aspect, that uh, the economy could function on uh, mutual credit, which is the... uh, the, the uh, creation of credit money by mutual banks uh, at no interest. And uh, this would allow workers to get a hold of capital and to form their own personal businesses or join together in a cooperative so that uh, they're, they're not uh, exploited by any way by employers or anything like that. And so when those three, three are combined, you get geomutualist panarchism. Okay, I mean, that brings up tons of questions. It's a super fascinating topic. But before we get into peppering you with questions, I kind of want to get like a, can you give us a picture of what that system would look like in action? Like what what would cities be like? What would territories be like? What? How would the governments work? What, what would it look like? Well, a lot of that would, I mean, basically all of that would be up to the participating uh uh, member organizations or or member governments or associations or whatever form it takes. So you'd have various different kinds of communities taking various forms that would be self-governing and so establishing their own uh, governmental or non-governmental systems of their choice coming together into a confederation. Um, what's unique about the geomutualist panarchism as opposed to a, a more standard or traditional panarchism as it was originally presented is that it addresses uh, some of the issues with property rights, um, such as how are communist societies and individualist or capitalist societies going to interact 
when it comes to issues uh, between their borders rather than within their borders. And so <clears throat> uh, that would be dealt with in a Georgist fashion. So the Confederation would hold the land in common between all of the member organizations, member governments, or member anarchies, or whatever you prefer. And uh, it would rent out uh, it'd rent out the uh, territory or the, the space, the property, whatever is preferred by the, by the participants um, to them. And they would all share in the economic rent. So the member organizations would all uh, pay economic rent to the Confederation for use of the, the area protected by the Confederation. And the economic rent would then be uh, divvied up between them. So it'd be something like a leveler so that um, basically every, every type of uh, organization, association, government, or et cetera, could have a chance to, uh, to exist. And this would allow a kind of natural selection to take place or a market selection to take place, wherein competing societies uh, could try out their different values in competition with each other and see uh, you know, who gets the furthest. Um, another component would be uh, geomutualist panarchism takes into consideration some of the, the issues like uh, what's going to be done uh, with a money, money system. And that, that's particularly an issue when it comes to dispute resolution, because solving disputes in kind uh, can lead to all kinds of arguments and things. So uh, yeah. according to my idea, I think that it's best to agree on some sort of medium of exchange uh, at least for dispute resolution purposes. It could also serve a role in uh, in trading and stuff, but some communities won't participate in that. And it could also uh, provide a, a a stable mechanism in which the economic rent could be paid to the Confederation by the member organizations. Okay, so I, I want to start with the questions, if you don't mind, Chad. Um, I, first off, what I... I watched your video on this and, or I don't know if you had more, but one of your videos on this. And um, I just, can you describe what the function of what you called the um, civil registry would be? Yeah. So the civil registry, that's, that's just Paul Emile de Poit's idea that uh, the different member organizations or governments or et cetera uh, could sign up with it and just basically be recognized. Uh, so the civil registry itself wouldn't have any kind of authority or anything. It really is just a registry in the sense that, um, these, these associations of various sorts are signing up, uh, and being recognized in this registry. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically the idea. When, it, when I'm hearing about that, it's kind of reminding me of uh, blockchain. I'm wondering if blockchain technology could actually assist in doing something like that. Essentially, a blockchain is a registry, and so um, it would be a decentralized way of registering all these different uh, government bodies, I suppose. Okay, so would the governing bodies themselves would be the registrants, or would the participants of that system, of each system, be registered? Is that what? I'm not sure. Right, so... I suppose a, a extreme individualist uh, would be the governing body. They would be the registrant. But otherwise, you'd have communes, uh, nations, cooperatives, collectives, all sorts of uh, you know, confederations or various other organizations or associations and the, the various forms they take. So I'm having trouble. Um, I'm struggling with um, really getting a good firm grasp on how land would be organized under this system and how the disputes between these governing bodies would, would work in those geographical situations. Sure. Um, okay. So it, it might be easiest to understand a, uh, a kind of common access or, or commons um, approach to land. So let's say uh, in the in the Middle Ages, before you had the uh, the enclosure acts, you might have shepherds sharing a common pasture, and that pasture was held in common. But uh, when a particular shepherd was out there using it, they're occupying and using it, 
it was understood to be in their possession. So you couldn't just go in there and start, you know, pushing them around and taking their pasture space. It was understood that while it's in their possession, they get to use it. Um, and and same goes for everyone else who who is a commoner. And um, but it, it was possible in the commons if you were a particularly good shepherd to uh, to possibly pay pay off the rest of the community to exclude them. So you could tell them, you know, I'm I'm the best shepherd around, and uh, I have, you know, you recognize that. So how about you let me use the pastures exclusively so that I have access to them whenever I need them because I put them to the best use. And in exchange for that, I will give you the surplus production from being able to do that. And you will actually win out because when the pastures are put into my hands as the most productive shepherd, I actually produce more sheep. I uh, take care of births better. And so we end up with more sheep in the end. And so if you get to share in that extra production created by me, uh, allowed by you because I'm a better producer, then we all win out. I get to take a better share and so do you. Okay, and, so me- and so so the idea would be instead of, um, instead of just on an individual level, this could happen uh, between these various communities or organizations, associations, governments, et cetera, so that uh, where whatever, whatever the territory may be, uh, that organization that makes the best use of it will be able to afford excluding the others. And in excluding the others, the others actually benefit because they, is, they end up. Is best use, best use translated to most profit? Well, uh, you could say profit of account. I, I wouldn't say economic profit necessarily, um, but you, you could say profit of account. So it, it best use would be, uh, you know, who who makes the the highest return, and that would be that would be measured in terms of currency. Okay, so when you were talking about um, turning over um, surplus value or economic rents, what is what what is considered economic rent or uh and what do you say to somebody who thinks that sounds a little bit like socialism whenever you take that and redistribute it sure so um so economic rent is the difference uh between uh different locations or uh, grades of land so an uh, easy way to think of it would be the productive difference between, say, the jungle or a desert. Uh, the difference between the jungle and the desert, which is not due to anyone working on it uh, and, and adding any kind of improvements, that's the economic rent. So economic rent is the measure of the natural, natural advantage that one piece of land has over another one. Um, as to the, the question about socialism, socialism is kind of a mixed bag. Uh, in, in today's terms, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily amount to uh, socialism, which is understood usually as state socialism. Um, but historically, uh, it, does, it does have some relation to socialism, although uh, many of the classical liberal thinkers were also in favor of these kinds of ideas, including people like uh, John Stuart Mill, um, Adam Smith, uh, Thomas Paine. Uh, Brooks, Spinoza, and other people in the liberal tradition. So it's it's actually kind of a crossover point, a kind of meeting place, actually, between classical liberalism and socialism. Okay, so, I, I, if I could jump in real quick, I, I'm just wondering. So, <clears throat> so this is sort of a metaphor, like when you're when you're giving that metaphor of the the shepherd uh, paying the other uh, community members. Uh, to to have exclusive right over a piece of property, um, so is that the the tax that you're referring to? Or would the tax be yeah. paid to the confederation or to just the people in the area? Or like who's imposing the tax? Is it imposed like a tax or is it just a fee? Sure, that's a good question. So yes, it would it would be uh, well, it wouldn't be imposed as a tax because I, I would want this to be. Um, a voluntarist effort. Uh, 
So it'd be an effort of free association. So you could think of it more in terms of dues, uh, but you could say it's a tax in form, just not one in substance. It would look like a tax. It, it might feel kind of like a tax, except you could opt out if you want to and go, uh, you know, try to claim your own territory. <clears throat> um, I'm uh, sorry, what was the, the second part of your question? The second part was, uh, who is the tax being paid to exactly? Oh, okay. So, yeah, so the tax is being paid to uh, the commons uh, collected as, as a collective entity in the form of the confederation. Um, so, and that would be, that would be by the uh, member organizations. Now, what they do from that point inside their organization, that's up to them. So once the territory, once the, uh, the area, the geographic boundary, which would amount to their personal property, essentially, once that is claimed, they can go about managing it in whatever, whatever function or fashion that they want to. So uh, a, capitalist, uh, a capitalist organization or association uh, composed of member capitalist individuals uh, might want to organize things very much uh, in the way that we do private property, right? Um, except that they, they might have to pull together to pay for the economic rent they collectively hold, unless they choose to, uh, to do this on, uh, on land that is not so, not so desired, not desired, that's not uh, in competition as much. So other, other, other communities are not trying to make use of the land as well. So it's, it's uh, not in high demand. In that case, they would actually be able to receive rent payments from the Confederation and use that land for free. So they, they wouldn't have to pay any tax and they could actually receive uh, dividends from the Confederation. Gotcha. So there would and be the, like a bid situation where different different organizations are bidding on certain property and like the highest bidder wins. Yeah, something like that. And uh, yeah, that's great because that, that uh, also lets me make the point that this would be a... Uh, the economic rent would be set by market forces, by supply and demand. So okay. a bid is, is, is a great example. Yeah, I'm really liking this idea. Um, I'm trying, like in my mind, I'm trying to, I'm trying to merge this with, um, you know, modern technology. And I'm, I'm wondering if like this would work if you had the ability to create a decentralized autonomous organization that was essentially the Confederacy and it actually controls the funds and automatically dispenses to the members so that, um, you know, you could have bidding wars on certain pieces of property. Whoever wins and owns a piece of property then is going to be paying that tax to the decentralized organization, which is the Confederacy, basically. And then it would automatically distribute those payments to all of the members of the Confederacy. Would yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And okay. so it's, it's not a winner takes all system. It's a system uh, where winner takes proportional to their winnings and everyone else gets to keep their winnings too. Where does the money come from? What money are we using in this system since apparently uh, the United States has dissolved? So it's obviously Bitcoin. What currency would, how would we, <laughs> except for nobody <laughs> produces anything in Bitcoin. Or, or nobody buys anything in bitcoins. Who buys bananas with bitcoins? Yeah. So, uh, in in my version of this, it would be mutual credit. And so, the idea behind mutual credit is that uh, any participating member, uh, whether an individual or a a uh, organization, you know, however however it goes with in the instance, um, can come to the to the mutual bank, can offer collateral of any sort that has market value, and be issued currency equal to that. Um, without as as a loan in which they do not owe any interest, and there might there might also be a certain degree to which goodwill allows one to access credit without having actual physical capital, and so goodwill would then allow people to access capital and get into business. Couldn't theoretically the U.S. government right now open up accounts at the Fed? for the people privately and give out interest-free loans if they wanted? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, they, uh, the, the fact that they don't do that brings a lot of questions at why. I think that, that brings a lot of, uh, 
a lot of clarity as to the nature of, of what a government is. It's a, an organization that uh, rules in favor of a ruling class, uh, which makes it different from a society, different from an association or a club or any other kind of, uh, any other kind of uh, civil arrangements like that. See, I'm I'm a proponent of the idea that the system that we have actually functions pretty well if we would clean it up a little bit through a little bit of policy. And it sounds like the switch to something like this would be very long, and um, if there would be a learning process mm-hmm. to it, um, mm-hmm. I'm afraid we don't have that kind of time right now to do something like that until we get our energy consumption situation stable uh, and build an infrastructure that allows for something like that. Um, How would we ease a transition to something like this or build a transition? So so ultimately, you know, I do think you're right. I think that is a problem. Uh, I don't think the problem though means that a government is not a government such that uh, we can influence it uh, because we have to get something done. Um, that is an issue, uh, but we are presented with this issue where government, the nature of government is that we can't influence it um, as a, as a uh, abiding class. The, the ruling class, and particularly the, the elites among the ruling class, have a great amount of influence within it. But people that in the, the lower and middle classes don't really have so much influence in it, such that... Um, you know, they really can't get anything done in their favor. Um, And the government does throw a few bones now and then to try and gain legitimacy. Uh, But in my opinion, personally, I don't think that there's any pragmatic use of government simply because of of the essential, uh, the essentials of what government is, which is a a ruling body. And a ruling body isn't a body that takes orders from the bottom. And so I think you're right. I think we do have to create infrastructure and that all of this is dependent on infrastructure and a, a new awakening, uh, you could say, uh, a new enlightenment. I, I don't think that, that that means, because there's there's difficulties with it, that it changes the nature of what government is such that we can influence the direction that it takes. <clears throat> that, that's so, my personal, personal take on So I'm glad you brought up um, movements and... Um one of the biggest things is every time change has happened in most places, it's been to a regional or local movement. How does a decentralized entity, um, how does a decentralized group such as, you know, one of these, uh, you know, the Republican party in a decentralized, how do they gather in a geographical nature and who, who do they push for that change in in the streets, because that's really the lower income people. That's the only power they have is to be able to take to the streets and protest because they could withdraw their money from the system. It wouldn't matter. It's so little compared to, you know, larger interests. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't quite understand the, the part about the Republican. Okay. So like, it was just that it, like, uh, you know, these different parties, it's a decentralized entity, these different parties, people from all over the country have joined into this uh, party or whatever it would be, this sector of this decentralized entity. And okay. they're spread out, say one of the parties has um, 50,000 people in it, but they're spread out all over the country. How do those people mobilize if they can't get together in one place and, and march on Washington or you know, no, I, protest a geographical system. So you're talking in the terms of if a geomutualist panarchy was established. Right. And like it's a decentralized system. I belong to the whatever party. Okay. Republic, well, you, we'll say Republican Party. And I yeah. pay my dues and everything. Yeah. But the rest of the people in the party with me are spread out all over the country. Sure. How would this group of people mobilize to put together a march or a protest? Because they could withdraw their money from the system and stop paying, and it wouldn't change the problem that they're trying to solve. But what would they be protesting? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I, I don't know that, that protesting would so much be necessary now uh, or, or in this, this condition. I suppose you could do it. Uh, but, but to answer your question, um, I think it would be very much like how churches or, or unions or other um, non-geographic confederations do already. Um, you have the, you know, the uh, American Confederation of Worker Cooperatives and, and the, gro- the American Cooperative Grocers Association and, uh, you know, different uh, associations of churches and things that are, are national, even international. And, and they do mobilize to get things done. They, they go out on their missions. Uh, they set up their businesses. They do all, all sorts of they do their financing, uh, all in ge- non-geographic manners. Um, and, and they and some of them do uh, organize protests in specific geographic locations. Um, I, I guess maybe you're, you're wondering, uh, are, is your concern about maybe having no public property in which to do a demonstration or? Well, OK, so say that one of these descent, this decentralized unit uh, decided to do something destructive in my hometown. And sure. I'm not a part of that entity. I'm a part of a different entity, but it's in my town and I've got to deal with it. I can't oh. get a group of people together as easily to go picket the the front of that, you know, the front doors of that place. Um, as I can if I'm, you know, protesting okay. a, uh, a centralized place like City Hall who authorized the the thing that's happening you know what i'm saying yeah okay so you're talking about disputes between member organizations and, that, and how those might be resolved or, or participants in those um i think that's what you're saying anyway is that right well i'm trying to connect the geographical organization of things um and the decentralized entities and how public needs are met through them specifically like say a group of corporations banded together started their own uh sector of this uh governance service provider this governance or well, yeah governance service provider okay they, they and they decided that they're going to i don't know dump all their trash right behind my house how do i like in this case we I would usually organize with people in the community to go to city hall. But sure. How do where do I go to like do I just call my service provider and then what like everybody else that's with that service provider scattered all over the country? What if everybody else in my service provider is like I don't give a crap about what's happening in Mesquite? And oh, so okay. my service sure. providers not want to do anything about it. Sure, I can leave and go to a different one, but I think this problem still exists. Nobody cares particularly about any geographical location because there's these people aren't organized in this place. Sure, the people of the town may be pissed off, but they all belong to different providers. They're all complaining to different people. Sure. Um, so that there may be some natural limits to how far uh, one can be from from other members of their community and still actually be able to receive service. It might actually be out of a service range or something like that. Um, but in the in the case that it, it, you can receive service, that that you are uh, not too distant, that that uh, you are an affiliate that, that can receive those services, then uh, you could talk to your your organization as your dispute resolution organization. So these would also, also, you know, each, each community would have their own means of solving disputes. But when it comes to inter-community disputes, they'd have to come together in some way, either by uh, selecting a third party or defaulting to the confederation itself as the third party, uh, which should be in part of the contract when they sign up, um, in the case that they can't agree on a third party on the spot. And so that, that could provide dispute resolution or mediating services. Also, uh, if, if, they're, if they're dumping on land, that brings into question who, who is uh, in possession of that land, who has use rights to that land at the time. So uh, in, in, in the case that there are use rights, uh, a lawsuit could be filed and, and 
So compensation could be gained. The, the trash might have to be moved at their expense, uh, something to that effect. Um, and that would be an issue that would be um, discussed between the, the member organizations and, uh, and the members that they're representing. Okay. Um, but there, so you could say also that, that there might be environmental limits to, to uh, what kind of practices a community is going to allow in the first place. So even land that's not in use, a, a community might be paying the rent on as a nature preserve or something like that, or, or some other, other reason. And since they have control, they can say that, uh, you know, this isn't going to be used as, as a dump site or even for production or extraction or anything like that. It's just a nature preserve. Well, the way I see it all, all working out, like in my head, is people do the decentralized thing. They join a party that ideologically matches their values. But, you know, there may only be three or four other people in that party in my town. There seems no way to really... Um, to have a say in what happens in my own town at that point. And I, I feel like the people in that town would all end up having this problem with all of their providers and end up forming a local governing system anyways. They would all end up coming back, being geographical and having local and town governments like we have right now already. It might be practical for people to uh, combine properties sometimes or locate in close proximity to one another. Um, I don't think if they're having a hard time uh, forming a voluntary association because they're lacking the numbers, they'll have an easier time forming a government. They'll have an easier time forming a government if they uh, ha are having a difficult time forming voluntary associations because their numbers are lacking. They yeah, might I, they might be inclined to drift toward an ideology uh, that um, is a little bit more individualistic and that itself accounts for all these particularities uh, that separate people and say, you know, that's OK and and find some kind of inclusiveness in that. Um, real quick, I, I just want to mention, like, th this is kind of picking up on a part of panarchism that's like. It's one of the reasons why I love the panarchist philosophy, but it's also why it's difficult to explain to other people is that I feel uh, like yeah. it's, it's um, what the panarchist system does is it kind of, it produces an underlying framework that allows the individual actors to, to interact and cooperate and come to their own, uh, their own answers to these types of questions. So it's like, you know, I, I like Dustin, these questions that you're asking will, his answers are a lot of like, maybe they'll do this or maybe they'll do that. And I think it's because Panarchist just allows for the kind of spontaneous organization of individual actors figuring out the best way to organize themselves. And you can't really predict what they're going to do, but they're just in the framework. They have the ability to find a solution that works. Well, I think that ability exists now if we would give people, you know, the resources that they need to to figure those things out and i think that's one of the, the main things that we really need to fix is the way that the funding is distributed and uh like i, I think I, you know i feel like you're right like innovation happens on its own um but the tools necessary to do that need to be there um, and I don't know if I don't know if decentralizing things, it just feels like it makes it even more convoluted at first uh, until it gets normalized. Yeah. Well, I think the one of the main appeals of the panarchist idea is that, you know, like if uh, there's no one size fits all for every person and, you know, 300 million people um, from a centralized uh, government. And what the panarchist system offers people is the the freedom to have the government of their choice. Like right now, you cannot have a socialist government. I cannot have a libertarian government. We don't really have any freedom in that sense. And what the panarchist system solves is that problem of fighting over the one center of power. 
Um, well, no, no, you can belong to whatever party you want to. Like, that's the thing. Like, you're you're a libertarian, and I'm a progressive. Like, there's conservatives and Republicans. Like, those parties already are allowed to exist. But now. yeah, it's they, just the parties can exist. Getting them a seat at the table. But like, if my party gets a seat at the table and we impose a libertarian ideology on you, and you don't want it. That's a fundamental problem that eventually leads to civil wars and all kinds of bad things. And it's going to implement a bunch of policies that you don't agree with. And what the panarchist system does is it solves that by allowing everyone to have the government of their choice without imposing it on people that don't want it. I don't know. Would you agree, Will? Yeah, I, I think there's. Yeah, I, I agree with many of the points you're making. And I, I also uh, feel a lot of what Dustin's uh, mentioning. Um, I, I do think that that there's issues of inequality that have to be solved before a lot of a lot of things can take place. Um, you know, so I, th I think these are valid concerns. I, I lean a little bit more to Chad's comments, but I, I do uh, I do understand Dustin's concerns and I do have the same concerns as him when it comes to inequality and things like that. Uh, my main difference with what Dustin is saying is that I, I might have a different sociological take on what, what the state or the government uh, is, uh, sociological or anthropological, um, in that I don't, I don't see the state as something that we can influence. I don't, I don't think it's something that came about because people got together and created this entity uh, that now uh, rules us through compulsion. Um, my, my outlook on the state is uh, sociologically and anthropologically that it is the development of uh, cults and of gangs. And the state is actually the, the, the victor when it comes to warfare uh, between gangs. And so when it, like, uh, when it, for instance, in the, the, uh, the American government, uh, the American government has its origins in the Green Dragon Tavern, uh, which was the uh, St. Andrew's Lodge of Freemasonry. So the, uh, from the very beginning, you have uh, kind of religious uh, fraternities, some people would say cults, uh, at the origins of these governments. Uh, the the, uh, the uh, Freemasons of St. Andrew's Lodge, uh, led by uh, Joseph Warren, who, which uh, you might find interesting, is also the uncle of Josiah Warren, the first American anarchist. Um, so he, he was leading, leading the, the Freemasons during the... Uh, American Revolution. They formed the Sons of Liberty as a secret society, um, and they uh, they basically had a revolution by a, a small number of people. Um, eventually, uh, they they would come to after Shays Rebellion. They they got scared that that farmers and and other poor people in the United States were going to uprise, and so they changed over to the new Constitution uh, to protect against threats both foreign but especially domestic. And so from the very beginning, I think that the history of the U.S. government and the, the sociology of all governments shows that governments are an exclusively controlled uh, association of people, uh, which controls the rest of us. Uh, when they shifted over to the new constitution, they, and, and they'd eventually allow, uh, allow for uh, universal suffrage. But if you notice, everyone that we're allowed to choose between when it comes to the actual elections are the super rich. And behind the scenes, it's my belief that these people are, uh, are associated through fraternities and at least have a cultural affiliation as members of the ruling class together, wherein they recognize that they have things in common that the rest of us don't have in common and that they don't want to share with us. And so... So from my opinion, I think it's absolutely useless to talk about any changes being made through the government, as useless as uh, when the mafia knocks on your door and takes your money and leaves your pizza, uh, having uh, a dispute about what kind of pizza the mafia should bring you next time. Well, I don't want to get into the mischaracterization of the, the government, but um you know i i i think that it can be that i think any system can be that i think just decentralizing something on its own is not removing that what these p 
people that we're given to choose from, who who are they and where do they come from? They're members of usually the RNC, DNC, private yeah. for-profit companies. And I don't see that changing under a, you know, this system that you're you're telling us about. Um, it's I just it, to me, money equals power. Power equals control, no matter what system you're in, unless it's somehow mitigated by the bylaws of that system. Yeah, I, I do find that agreeable. I do. I, th- I think especially that, you know, the, the money is in control and the, the bylaws. I do agree with that. Uh, the difference is that I see government as something beyond a simple association of people. I see it as a monopoly on violence which is a particular kind of association, which is exclusive because you can't have a monopoly without exclusion. And so but I, I agree violence with you to there. some extent is always going to be necessary, you know, to stop horrific violence. Right. I, I do think defensive violence. Yeah. Is, is definitely justified. Okay. And so under this system, how do, like, it just seems like it leads back to the, the same kind of, behavior just a different group gets in charge right now a lot of a lot of the control that's happening is controlled by corporations tying up legislation yes for, for yes. so long that yes that who whoever has the most money is the one that's going to win that battle that's right that's right and that... does this system that you're proposing does do you think it completely stops that kind of um, um wealth accumulation to where they can do I, things like that? Yes, I do. I don't think it can do so immediately, but I think it can be a cumulative process that ultimately takes complete control of the banking system from the bottom of society. Uh, and this is because um, I'm operating on Proudhon's idea of mutual credit. The idea behind mutual credit is that even the poorest person can provide value to the economy and so has a basis for a means of exchange. That allows people at the very bottom to be the locus in which money is created. So they actually, uh, when, it, when it comes down to it, we actually have the natural, the natural liberty, a natural liberty that government can never take from us well, to do our I mean, own accounting. And when, accounting is all that money really is. So all that we really need is a new enlightenment where we come to understand this. And then we take the power from the banksters by doing our own accounting. And that's all that it really takes, because like you said, once you have the money power, you control everything else. So when money's created by the Fed, that's they're created by the banks. Um, and those are it's usually created by loans by two given two people who sought a loan. Like to me, that is market driven. That's not the banks having control. It's controlled by the number of people looking for loans. Yes, uh, to some extent. Uh, and that's that's particularly true when it comes to member banks of the Fed, uh, because the Fed offers low interest loans to those banks. And so they have a little bit more of a, uh, they're a little bit more on equal terms, not even, not quite, but they're a little closer to it. Um, but as it, as things trickle down, the interest rates accumulate all the way down to the bottom to where to you get very, uh, very exploitive rates up to like 15%, stuff like that. Uh, what mutual credit does, it allows um, concepts in modern monetary theory really uh, to take place, but under conditions uh, described by uh, free banking thought in perhaps something like the, the Austrian school of economics. So the idea with the mutual bank is that uh, the, the fact that it takes place in a, in a marketplace uh, in which people can associate or not with it uh, drives down the price. The price of money is interest, so it drives down the interest. And by being uh, held in common as a mutual organization, it also allows the people that bank there, the customers, to have democratic control of the bank, thereby also controlling the interest rate so that they can't be, they can't be exploited by the bankers. So there's various mechanisms uh, that are in place, both from the left and the right. So I, I'd agree with you a lot with modern monetary theory. Uh, you know, 
which also suggests the interest rates should be 0%. Uh, Absolutely. The only thing I'd, I'd add for the most part is that, you know, the, the reason that they're not 0%, even though that's the natural interest rate, is because of the natural condition of government, which is a monopoly on force. It's not going to allow that to occur because it can no longer extract resources from the population that way. I mean, go to Honduras. Somebody's always going to have that monopoly on force, and it's always who has the most resources, not the most money. You know what I'm saying? But that uh, that kind of uh, bolsters the point that he was making earlier that these are essentially the gangs that won or these are the uh, the outgrowth of of uh, warlords basically throughout history um but i think the idea is we're trying to figure out a way <laughs> to do it a different way to not to not have it go that way um which i mean it, if you can it, figure it out a way hard. to keep evil people from being evil people and taking over any system that they find themselves in then maybe but the only way I see to do that is to regulate that through a central authority that has coercive power. Well, the way I kind of see things is um, when discussion turns to, to things like anarchism, which is, is a lot of my philosophy and a lot of the foundation for a lot of this, especially mutualism. Um, and we, we're talking about decentralization. Well, I think, I think that there's, there's ways that we can think about this that aren't so helpful that kind of take us towards a sort of primitivism. I don't think we can ever go back to a, a decentralism of that sort where we're living in, in small bands and like that. And so we have to think about well, what might what might a uh, an anarchy that isn't that isn't primitive look like? And it, when we when we consider uh, the state as uh, an inevitable force that arises from natural selection as an, as an evolutionary process, uh, then, we, then we have to admit uh, that all these authoritarian structures have some sort of function, like you're saying, Dustin, that there, there are uh, reasons that these come about and they do hold power, and that is a fact of nature that we, we can't get around. Um, so so the, kind of, the kind of anarchism that I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in, in the background of, you could say this is the society I'd like to participate uh, in, in the panarchy, maybe, uh, or, or hopefully be a, a guiding force in it uh, to the degree uh, acceptable by others, is that I think that we have to find freedom in association rather than disassociation. So when it comes to, I'm, I'm not necessarily in favor of language of decentralism, because I do think central organizations are necessary. What I'm a little bit more interested in is forming associations in which a natural equilibrium can take place, wherein people do not have the means to overpower one another, wherein property uh, rights do not allow resources agree. to accumulate and things like that. And so it actually kind of looks a little bit more like, um, you know, original classical democratic philosophy like you might find in Spinoza. And a lot of my, my philosophy recently has been uh, kind of driven towards incorporating this kind of Spinozan type democratic thinking um, a little further uh, to a cumulative process of an anarchy, uh, whereas, which means no ruler, uh, not because we're not associated, but because we found out the way to do away with mechanisms of domination. But that, that would have to be an associative process, not, not something that we can do as individuals all alone. I completely agree. Uh, but what I think uh, one of the thoughts or concerns about this is when the rest of the world finds out that this is what we've done, we've decided to go this route and do this thing that you're talking about. And um, we've done it. We, we've successfully all divided ourselves up into these things. People who don't want to be part of it just aren't. And people who do are all in their own little private thing. How long is it going to be before the uh the groups are all talking to each other going look i've we we're all hearing that there's a threat china's heard about this that's happening and thinks they can take us on now that the united states is no longer a thing and how long is it going to be before they all get together and go hey we need to take y'all's money and go deal with this and we end up back in this exact same spot right so so um i guess i guess what i'd say to that is if if in the case, say, a local government were replaced like this, 
Uh, it could only occur because this has been found to be superior in organizing capacity to that government. And so through the, the process of natural selection taking place, it ensures that a more stable system has displaced the older system, uh, allowing for greater security for that, for that area or, or the people involved in it. Right. So it would, create, that answers. it would create a incentive for the populations in these other countries to start pushing towards going that route as well, because I mean, Honduras it, is an extremely decentralized place and it is very, very unstable. Decentralized places usually happen right after a war and an overthrow of a regime, and they're always very unstable. Sure. Um, but, okay, so in the case that the government has been, been removed uh, prematurely before uh, a, an association is mature enough to do the removing, you know, that's you know that that's a thing that happens, and I'm not sure we can do much about it because it's kind of a, a kind of a natural natural issue. It's kind of beyond human control um, at that point. Um, I just and it's because it's something that they, even a, a new government. Face, I, I just know? feel like um, whenever we do this thing, it almost because you know the U.S. dollar won't be a thing anymore. We'll be giving up our sovereignty which our sovereignty is, you know, what allows us to be able, our sovereignty and our floating exchange rate is what allows us the domestic policy space to deal with large threats like that. And it, it sounds like to me under, under a new system like that, we would almost have to convert back to something like Bitcoin or, or gold standard. Uh, and, um, I feel like we would be digressing to what Mosler calls uh, Warren Mosler calls soft currency economy. And that I, I fear would be disastrous. No, I, I understand the concerns with that. Um, I'm actually, you'd be surprised. I actually, I feel a lot the same way as you do about a lot of these things. Um, so I, I, I'd prefer the same mechanism that you're talking about, uh, but in the voluntary form of the confederation. So I do like floating exchange rates. That's essentially uh, what the mutual credit amounts to, because you're, you're going to set the mutual credit is going to be based on interest-free loans uh, backed by various forms of collateral. And so the, it's going to have a floating exchange rate, essentially. Um, but you, the only difference really would be that it would take, take, uh, take place uh, within a voluntary confederation. Okay. All right, I see. Well, um, I think we should probably wrap it up, but but wow, that was a that was an amazing. Um... That was good, just in time. I'm all out of questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a great podcast. Thank you for coming on, Will. Uh, maybe yeah. we can have you back on sometime. Sure, I'd love yeah. to. Yeah, man. Thanks for joining. I, uh, that cleared up a lot of stuff and the questions that I had after I watched your video. So that was great. Okay. Oh, yeah. Good. Appreciate it. All right, yeah, thanks everybody. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah. Peace. If you've gotten something of significant value from what you just heard, please consider supporting the show by visiting our Patreon page or copying some sweet merch at our website, inthedrivewaypodcast.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, love really is the answer.